So in Mark 14, Mark becomes very particular about times. Uh, most, as we talked about, the Gospel of Mark is a fast-moving gospel. I mean, it's action-packed, you know, and then Jesus, and immediately Jesus, and then Jesus, moving from scene to scene to scene. And here it almost comes to a, not to a screeching halt, but almost a slow motion. It zooms in on these final days of Jesus' life. And uh, Mark sets the stage by saying it is the time of Passover. Passover, the most significant annual feast in the Jewish world. For seven days, people, the Jews from all over Palestine would gather in Jerusalem for what was basically a, a massive party, also called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, you may know of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the significance of it from the book of Exodus. It's the feast that remembers when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And there's a series of things they move through as the week progresses. And, and one of the things they commemorate is, and why they call it the Feast of Unleavened Bread, is because at the time of the Exodus, when God was freeing his people out of slavery, moving them to the promised land, that he wanted them ready to move at a moment's notice. At the, at the Lord's command, quick, ready to go. In fact, so quick and so fast, so rapid response, that they didn't even have time to wait for the, bread, the yeast in the bread and the dough to rise. And so the bread was made without yeast, unleavened bread. In other words, our matzah bread or flat bread that you may have seen or experienced. Some of you a few weeks ago, uh, the week before Easter, celebrated Passover together. That Passover meal, which is actually only one of the nights of the Passover celebration. But the Passover meal was recognized by the, the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. If you remember the story in Exodus, when, uh, when God brought Moses to deliver the people and they walked through those series of plagues and Pharaoh's heart hardened against the people of God, not willing to release them or set them free. Until finally that one fateful night and the final plague, the sacrifice, the killing of that firstborn son. And what God had told the people of, of Israel, and actually anyone could have followed God's command and found grace and deliverance. But what he said was, what I want you to do is that afternoon is to sacrifice a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to, and to spread it on the doorpost of your home, on the threshold and on the sides of the door, the top and the sides. And as you sacrifice that lamb and prepare that lamb and then eat that lamb, you will then walk into that, through that doorway of blood into the safety of your home. And when the angel of death passes over the land, any home that is marked with the blood of the lamb will be saved, delivered, spared. And then the next day, having been spared, they would walk back out that doorway of blood and on the path to freedom towards the promised land. But any home that was not marked with the blood of the lamb, the angel of death would take the firstborn son in that home. And so that night was remembered, commanded by God to be celebrated every year with this great feast where all the people of God, of Israel, those both adopted into the family and those born into the family would gather in Jerusalem to commemorate God delivering his people. 
And every year as they sacrificed that Passover lamb, and every year as they retold the story of the Exodus, it was in the context of exile, of again having not necessarily been brought back into slavery, but having been dispersed amongst the nations, having now been uh, overthrown and occupied by a foreign army by Rome living in poverty at the mercy of another empire. And so when they sacrificed that Passover lamb and they remembered the story of Exodus, it was always looking forward again to God's promised deliverance. That one day God would show back up. One day God would provide that final sacrifice of a lamb that would deliver his people, that Messiah, that anointed king that would, would deliver and set the people free. And so Mark sets the stage that it is at that time, just like this being a festival weekend, a a time of remembering, of grieving, mourning, and loss. For them, it was also a time to look forward to the hope, the freedom to come. feels really appropriate that we tell the Passover story on Memorial Day weekend, doesn't it? And so... Mark says it, it's two days before the actual Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. It's still Passover week. Jews have gathered. They've filled the city. In fact, it said it's told historically that the, the population of Jerusalem would have swelled to two to three times the normal population on any other given day. Sort of like Monroe on the Christmas parade, if you've ever uh, braved downtown on that uh, special night. Everyone slammed, packed in. And it says that that the the rulers, the religious elite, have decided to put Jesus to death. But they're afraid of the people. I mean, Jesus has the popular support of the crowd. They've seen the miracles. They've watched the way that he he, he touched and healed the lepers, and he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and and that the way that he had compassion on those that were forgotten and abandoned, the way that he even brought dead people back to life. And so they knew, I mean, if we make a big deal of this, the crowd could turn against us. And we don't want a riot, because a riot would bring the, Rome, the Romans, and the Romans would squash that real fast, and it would be on us. But we discover that one of Jesus' own, one of the twelve, that walked with Jesus for the past three years, had, had watched Jesus, do those miracles, say those things, and yet had agreed to betray Jesus to death. I remember those of you that have been walking through Mark with us, that Mark likes to, likes to insert sandwiches into his gospel account, if you remember what those are. Is where he's telling one story and then he kind of interrupts it with what seemingly another story, but actually highlights the significance of the larger story in which it's told. And here we get one of the last sandwiches of Mark. He starts telling you that it's the Passover time, but all of a sudden he diverts. And now we find Jesus in the home of some friends having dinner. We talk about the Last Supper, and we'll get there in just a moment, but this is actually the second to last supper. This is Jesus' meal before the final meal. And he's eating in a home of Simon the leper. Now, it's presumed that Simon was no longer a leper because no one would have been allowed to eat with him if he was. So we can guess that the commentators, theologians, believe that he was obviously one of those that Jesus had healed. In fact, it's thought that he may be. There's a story of ten lepers being healed, if you remember. And one of them comes back and gives thanks to Jesus for healing him. And that may be the Simon that has now invited Jesus into his home. 
And in the middle of that meal, remember it's a very divided uh, culture, especially when it comes to genders. And the, the men would have had their meal in one part of the house. The women would have had their meal in another part of the house. And it would have been very separate. It would have been very uncommon for a woman to interrupt the men's meal. And yet we see a lady come right into the middle of their dinner. And bringing with her what we can presume is the most valuable object she has, an alabaster jar filled with perfume and scented oils. We find out that that alabaster jar is worth 300 denarii, which denarii was a a term for a day's wage. In other words, the cost of the oil in that alabaster jar was one year's annual salary. So just take that into consideration. In fact, we can guess that it was probably an heirloom that was passed down from one generation to the next to the next until she holds this precious object of treasured value. And, or it was understood it could have been a, a dowry that was set aside to be paid one day for her husband-to-be. But here she recognizes the value of her Savior, of her Jesus. Now, we don't know if she understands the full significance of what she is doing, but Jesus does. What we do know is that she's honoring Jesus by pouring out, literally giving everything she has, pouring out her inheritance at the feet of Jesus, pouring out her future at the feet of Jesus. Now, those with her, they don't like it very much, and they say that they're... they're, uh, they're angered. In fact, that Greek word literally means that their nostrils flare. I don't know if you've ever been angry enough that your nostrils flared, but apparently that was happening in the room when they saw this waste of this precious oil. In fact, they kind of spiritualize it and they say, well, surely this could have been done, used for better causes. If you're going to waste your future, at least try to set somebody else or help somebody else. They could have been given away and, and used to bless the poor. Jesus says something interesting in response. and Jesus says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the entire world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now Jesus isn't discounting the significance of of caring for the poor. In fact, if you look at the rest of Jesus' ministry, it's part of the heartbeat of what he called his people to do. To give voice to the voiceless, to to care for the oppressed, to to lift up those that are broken. I mean, Jesus calls, that's what defined the church for generations, is that we are a people that give for the sake of those who have less. We give our lives for the sake of those who are broken. We seek to be a blessing to those who live as if their lives are cursed. And, And yet here Jesus says, yeah, but there's something even more valuable and precious than that. The point isn't the help. The point is the helper. What they need is a savior. And what she has recognized is that the most valuable gift is not the money you can give. It is not the ways you can serve. It is to point people to Jesus. And so Jesus says that and ties her, her anointing of his head. In fact, it's so much oil that uh, one of the other gospel writers indicates that it wasn't just his head, but it was his feet, that, that the oil spread across his whole body. And he says that this was done to prepare me for burial. 
recognizing the deeper significance of what Jesus was about to do, about to give his life for the sake of all of them. Now, we don't know if this confirmed for Judas that this can't be the kind of Savior he was looking for. This can't be the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs conquer in his mind. Kingdoms don't end up on a cross. Kingdoms end up crushing other weaker, lesser kingdoms. And for Jesus to say that he's preparing to die, he must not be my kind of king. So Judas goes and agrees to betray Jesus to them. And obviously when they heard it, they were glad. They gave him money. Notice this parallel of the woman who gave all of her treasure, all that she valued for the sake of Jesus, and Judas who took just a little bit to betray his Jesus. So the question for us is the same application that we can make from this passage. It's kind of pretty obvious right here, isn't it? Are we willing to lay down our inheritance, our hope? Are we, giving to, are we willing to give everything of value that we have and lay it at the feet of Jesus for the sake of Jesus? Are we willing to let everything go to die with Jesus to receive him? Not for his rewards, but for his relationship. Are we willing, like this woman, to be even shamed and embarrassed, to be ridiculed and rejected at the voice of our Lord? Now just pause for a second. Are, are we? Am I? Am I willing to give whatever I have? Am I willing to be embarrassed or even rejected? What kind of sacrifice am I willing to make? And this story of this woman's sacrifice that Jesus says is going to be told for the rest of history sets up what will become the greater sacrifice. And so on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, the day of the, fe- of the feast, his disciples said to him, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Notice that preparation matters. It comes up over and over again, this question of how are we preparing our hearts to receive Jesus? And he sent two of his disciples. He's always sending them in pairs. You're not meant to walk with Jesus alone or to obey Jesus by yourself. Though at times, they may feel lonely. And said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. I I love that. That even as Jesus is preparing to leave, he's telling them, I'm going to keep sending you people to follow. And I'm going to keep telling you where to go. Just keep listening to me. So church, I apply that even to our lives. God will keep telling you where to go and who to follow, what to do. Just keep listening to Jesus. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? I love that Jesus recognizes that there's a master of the house, but there's a greater master. And again, the question becomes, are we willing to give Jesus, are we willing to let go of being the master of our own homes to give the true master command And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and they went to the city. And sure enough, they found it just as he had told them. And so they prepared the Passover meal. 
And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. It's also presumed it wasn't just the twelve, but it would have been the other people that traveled with Jesus and their families. And as they were reclining at table, remember in that Middle Eastern culture, they didn't sit at tables like we do. They had low tables and they reclined on pillows. In fact, it was significant at, at Passover especially that they reclined and it became part of their tradition. And the reason was is because slaves eat standing up, ready at the, to serve the beck and call of their master in that culture, in that context. But freed people, royalty, reclined. And so even in the reclining of the Passover meal was this reminder that by the call of God, we are royalty in his eyes, sons and daughters of the king. And so they're reclining together, all of them, including Judas. And Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, hurting, grieving at that statement, and to say to him one after another, Is it me? Is it I, Lord? The interesting question there is that if they knew it wasn't them, why would they ask if it was? And I wonder if it's because every human heart has the capacity to betray Jesus. If there's a little bit of guilt in every soul standing before the Lord their God wondering, is it me? They said, it's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. Again, that seems like that'd be an obvious sort of statement, like, well, look out for the guy dipping his bread into Jesus' bowl. But actually, it was a family-style meal, more like salsa pre-COVID at a Mexican restaurant. We don't all get our own little dish. You just get one giant bowl, and you're all dipping it. And some of us are double-dipping, admittedly, right? And so Jesus, and so in that meal, they're all sharing from a common bowl together. And so basically, again, the di- distribution of the betrayal we are all complicit in Jesus' death somehow. And so uh, Jesus says, one that's betray- dipped his bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man will go as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. In fact, it would have been better if that man had not even been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, take, this is my body. The Passover feast is... Uh, centered around the bread and the wine of Passover. Obviously the lamb taking central focus, but the meal was actually orchestrated around four cups of wine. Jesus first, though, is taking the bread of the Passover meal. Unfortunately, I didn't get unleavened bread, but you can imagine with it. And Jesus takes that bread that they would have recognized as... as, uh, as symbolizing the deliverance of God, and he broke that bread, and he then makes this outstanding claim that for thousands of years the people of God had gathered for the feast of the sacrificial lamb, the feast of unleavened bread, hoping, waiting for their deliverer to come. And Jesus is saying that entire time, all of it was pointing forward to me. I am that Passover bread. It is my body that is being given to you. Those four cups of Passover come out of Exodus 6. If you want to write in your Bible next to Mark, write Exodus 6, 6, if you want to go turn there. 
It's, it's the promises of God to the Israelites. And God actually makes four promises in Exodus 6. What he says first is, I am the Lord your God. Now remember, Jesus is applying all of this to himself. That first cup that they would remember at the beginning of the meal was considered the cup of sanctification, the first promise being, I will take you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will set you apart. Jesus now saying that I am fulfilling these four cups. I am in a sense becoming these four cups because I am the one that will now set you apart, sanctify you. Second cup from the second promise. And I will set you free. The cup of freedom that Jesus would have passed around to his disciples and they would have shared, eaten before the meal, before the lamb was brought out. The Bible tells us that then Jesus ate that meal, presumably having already done the first two cups, the cup of sanctification and the cup of freedom. At the end of that meal, Mark tells us, after they've eaten the third cup, the cup of redemption. Jesus says, I will take you out from the land of the Egyptians. I will set you free from their slavery and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of justice. Now, for thousands of years, they had read that story and thought of God's redemption. The word redeeming means to be bought at a price. A sacrifice to be made. A ransom must get paid. To be redeemed is to be brought back into right ownership at a cost. But with an outstretched arm, surely that meant the mighty, strong arm of God smiting his enemies. But Jesus is going to show that it's a different outstretched arm that would bring about God's act of redemption. It's a different uh, outstretched arm that would bring about a different kind of judgment. Because the judgment of the world, that we all deserve the, the consequences of death for our own sins, the ways we rebelled against a good God, a good creator, the ways that we've failed to love God and to love our neighbor, the, fa- the ways that we have fallen short of all that God intended and made us to be and all that he made us to do. Our own sin, what God is recognizing or what Jesus is recognizing is that we don't need God to make good people better. In fact, we don't even need God to make bad people good. We need God to bring dead people back to life. The consequences of sin, the judgment for our sin, wasn't poured out on those who deserve it, but instead that outstretched arm, those mighty acts of judgment would be poured on Jesus' back for our sake, for the sins of all mankind. Not because of anything that we have done to deserve it or to earn it, but by the sheer grace of God. And so when Jesus held up that third cup of redemption, he was making a powerful statement. And what he said is, this is my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. In Mark, he records that Jesus said, it's the blood of a new covenant. In other words, new relationship with God, to be brought back into oneness with our Creator, where we've been torn apart by our sin, our rebellion, our hostility towards God. As Paul writes in Romans, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's that, act, and it's that Passover meal and all the symbolism of the bread and all the symbolism of the cups that we now remember and recognize as our Lord's Supper. When we take communion, we are reenacting this sacrifice of Jesus. 
Now, it's interesting that after the third cup, traditionally there's still a fourth cup meant to be drunk. It was called the, the cup of praise, or actually the cup of acceptance. And it comes from the fourth promise of God to the Israelites when God says, and I will take you to be my people, and, you, and I will be your God. To be fully reconciled back into intimate, one, restored relationship with our God. But no, Jesus doesn't actually drink that fourth cup. In fact, very explicitly, Mark wants you to know that the third cup, the cup after the meal is drank, and then traditionally the, the hymns are sung, the songs of praise, after which the fourth cup would be drunk. But instead, after the hymns are sung, instead of drinking the fourth cup, Jesus says, come now, it's time for us to go. He then walks out that door on the path to his death. It's as if Jesus knew what it would cost to drink that fourth cup. What it would cost for him to restore relationship to God. And so Jesus, not having drunk the fourth cup, then goes into a garden on the Mount of Olives. In fact, some of you this summer that will come with us to Israel and Palestine will see we will... We will go into that traditional garden of Gethsemane. And the old olive trees, some of them dating back to the time of Jesus, where Jesus says, stay here and wait for a moment. And his soul, sorrowful, says to the point of death. Luke tells us that as he prayed, that the, the exertion with which he prayed was like his sweat became like drops of blood. Jesus cries out, Father, Father, if there's any way, and what does he ask for? For this cup to pass, let it be so. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. He walks back over and finds his disciples sleeping, which after three glasses of wine, you can understand now in the middle of the night why they were sound asleep. Jesus then wakes them up and says, could you not even stay awake with me for an hour? Goes back and he prays again a second time, repeating that same prayer, Lord or Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, let it be so, yet not my will but yours be done. And a third time. And at that moment, having prayed and yet accepted obedience, the path that was before him that would bring about the reconciliation of humanity to God their Father. He looks up and says, Stan, here they come. And sure enough, a crowd led by Judas himself, armed with, with, uh, armed with torches, comes to take hold of Jesus. For the sake of time, I'll sum up the rest of chapter 14 as Jesus makes his way to the cross. Jesus is going to take with him to the cross all of the pain of humanity. And he will die on the cross for all of the sin of humanity. Jesus will literally walk through every pain that you and I could possibly experience. Betrayal. Abandonment. To be lied to and lied about, beaten, shamed, mocked, 
even as you read chapter 14, and again, as I say every week, spend time soaking in these chapters. It matters way more what God wants to speak to you through his word than anything that I could say from up here. But notice when it says that he's mocked, he actually ends up being mocked twice. Once mocked as a prophet and once mocked as a king. Everything that he stood for and everything that he embodied being cast aside flippantly like a joke. Abused, ridiculed, spat upon, tortured, and eventually crucified and killed. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed. Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned. Jesus knows what it is to be rejected. Jesus knows what it is to be shamed. Jesus knows what it is to be stripped of everything that you have and stood and mocked in front of others. But Jesus also knows, has taken upon us, not just the things done to us, but the things that we've done. The ways that we have lied the ways that we've shamed others, the ways that we've torn people apart with our words and our actions, the ways that we've hidden, the ways that we've pretended, the ways that we've hurt others, the ways we've walked away from God, the ways that we've prioritized our own pleasure to avoid our own pain at the cost of anyone around us. He knows our pride. He knows our greed. He knows our lust. He knows our failures. And all of it, all of it went with him on the cross. So when we claim to be Jesus' people, what we are claiming is that we stand in the grace and the love and the forgiveness of a God who took upon himself completely unmerited by anything that we could have ever done or could do, our pain and our sin, that we could be reunited with him. That's the good news. The full grace of God in the face of the total undeservingness of mankind. And so this morning, on this Memorial Day weekend, a weekend set aside to remember sacrifice, we take this moment to remember and maybe even to, for the first time to receive the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. When we take communion, we take it as an act of faith. Not simply as a religious tradition, the thing that you do when you go to church, but by taking the bread and the cup, you're making a, a statement with your life. That's why Jesus says to search your soul before you take communion. To not take it lightly. Lord, is there any way in me that I am still living in the pain of my own sin or the guilt and the shame of my own sin? Am I still bound by the pain of the things done to me by others? Is there any place that I'm living in unforgiveness or bitterness towards the people around me, my neighbor? Is there a place that I'm living in animosity or hatred or division? So just take a moment and search your own heart. Look back at the last few hours, the last week, the last month. maybe years or decades and recognize in a moment Jesus invites you to lay all of that at his feet and let it die on the cross with him that he can restore you redeem you back into relationship 
with the God who knows you, who sees you, who loves you. How do you need to receive the forgiveness of Christ this morning? So I'm going to invite a few people to help me. And we're going to distribute communion as you're comfortable. So Danny and Charity, if you want to come forward. Just wait just one second here. The first cup, sanctification. Benji and Grace, I'll give you the second cup of freedom. I need one more cloth. Robin Jill, I'll give you the third cup of redemption. John and Bailey, the fourth cup, acceptance and praise. Now, we don't actually receive them as four individual cups. Jesus took all of them unto himself and said, I am now. It is my blood that is these cups. But for every one of us in this act of communion, we recognize that Jesus Christ sets you apart as his own. That Jesus Christ sets you free and delivers you from the bondage of sin and death. That Jesus Christ has redeemed you by his sacrifice on the cross. And Jesus Christ has accepted you, adopted you as sons and daughters, pulled up a seat at his dining room table. And so we're going to enter into worship together. And with that image of Passover and Jesus' final meal, I invite you to take communion, just to tear off a piece of that bread and you'll dip it in the cup. I believe we have our gluten-free options for those of you that can't eat the, that bread on the corners over there. But I want to pray for us. We'll worship together. And on this final in May we honor service, we will... Take communion as an act of recognition, as an act of receiving. And maybe for you, for the first time, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to receive His forgiveness, His grace. So let me pray. Lord, we thank You for this powerful moment that You shared with Your family, with Your friends, those that You love, those that You called and set aside. And in the same way, we recognize that just as real as that moment was 2,000 years ago, Lord, you invite us into that moment this morning in 2022. And Lord, we recognize the pain of the world around us. We think about what happened in Texas earlier this week. We think what's happening on the other side of the globe. Lord, we recognize the hurt and the fear and the division. And we need you, Jesus. Just as much as they needed you, we need you, Jesus. You're our only hope. And so even this morning, whatever we are facing, and ever, whatever pain or whatever fear, whatever shame or guilt 
that we are living in right now, we bring that to you. May it die with you on the cross that your arms, your outstretched arms opened wide to receive us. God, may we not miss this. May it redefine everything for us. The way we see the world, the way we understand you, the way we see our neighbor. So Lord, search our hearts. And in honest confession, we come to you. In worship and praise, we adore you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen.